Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Good morning, everyone. It's your host here on Health Connect South Radio, C.W. Hall, joined in studio, as always, Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group. Good morning. Always a pleasure to be here. Now, if you saw an SUV driving on some sidewalks <laughs> through Atlantic Station, uh, that was Diana. She made it in. I think uh, the police uh, are on their way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> she was able to duck into the parking lot and without uh, getting nabbed. So we're real pleased to have you here. And uh, today we're going to be talking about hospital-acquired conditions and how to prevent those. We've got a couple of companies that are innovating in that space, trying to reduce the rate at which patients who end up in the hospital find themselves either acquiring a, a, an infection, perhaps, or uh, getting injured from a fall that could have been prevented. Um, going about it from different directions, one's addressing it from a cultural and behavioral perspective within the hospitals that they serve. The other one is developing an innovative uh, technology that can help uh, the clinicians who are delivering care uh, be a little bit more compliant with the recommended approach to hand washing, for example. And as I looked into some statistics uh, around hospital-acquired infections, that was the piece that I pulled up on the CDC, as many as 722,000 people acquired a hospital-acquired infection in in 2011. That was obviously a few years ago. Um, A lot of people are uh, having trouble with uh, either an infection or some other injury that uh, delays their uh, exit from the hospital or even prevents it, uh, causes uh, ultimately death. And obviously, that's a big problem for us that we would love to solve. So in keeping with our mission to help people understand that there are some cool resources in the healthcare space here in Atlanta, that's what we're all about today. So we'll get to our guests. Um, sitting in with us from Hangenix, uh, I've got the CEO of their company, Jeff Klein. So thanks for taking some time today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about the technology that you all are developing. And then the chief innovation officer for Sinensis is Rick Stone, and he's here with us as well. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. And so um, I, I'm going to start with, with you, Jeff. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about your technology, and then we'll kind of pull Rick in, and, and we'll talk about how uh, I think there could be some synergy there. Uh, there's some certainly some overlap. But uh, tell me about... Tell me about uh, Hangenix. Yeah, so Hangenix is an information, a health information company that uses ultrasound, actually, to monitor and improve hand hygiene compliance. One of the biggest challenges, as you mentioned, is that uh, hand hygiene is the number one cause of infections within hospitals. And one of the biggest challenges for hospital management is they have no effective means of actually monitoring or enforcing hand hygiene compliance. The, the current gold standard, if you will, are Clinicians actually have a clipboard, and they stand outside of a patient's <laughs> room, and they watch, you know, healthcare workers coming and going, and they make a decision: are they compliant or not? So, that by itself is is a challenge. I mean, number one, you're you're only sampling a very very small amount of the number of opportunities for hand washing, less than one percent potentially, and then you extrapolate that data across the whole health system. Say, here's our rate for the system. There's a level of the Hawthorne effect, so people are always acting on their best behavior. Like if yeah, you're dr- that's what I was going to say. But someone's standing there that's supposedly a quote-unquote secret shopper. Right, right. <laughs> I imagine so, it's clear why they're there. Absolutely. So the, the rates are skewed upward. Uh, the data that they get is not really actionable, and there's no individual accountability, and there's no real-time feedback. I think the clinicians... I mean, look, everybody intends to wash your hands when they're supposed to. That's our going-in assumption. But sometimes there's a lot going on and people forget or they're not quite familiar with the protocol. So our system is designed to provide uh, real-time feedback. So, you know, we've used ultrasound now to create a protection zone around the patient's bed. So when the healthcare worker enters that protection zone, it reads their badge and makes a determination, have they washed their hands within the last 30 seconds or so? And if the answer is no, it actually gives them a beep, gives them an opportunity to be compliant at that point. So, you know, it's not just about monitoring compliance. It's about providing real-time feedback to ultimately drive rates higher. Well, That's ahead. so interesting because, I mean, the fact that a beep is a lot better than as a patient mm-hmm. asking your provider if they've actually watched, washed their hands. Uh, which I is, agree, yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's great that we've given license to the patients to ask or inquire, but not everybody's comfortable in doing that. And sometimes patients are actually unconscious and aren't able to do that exactly. if they're in the ICU. So, and, and again, the the feedback mechanism we we want to create a beep that's loud enough for the clinician to hear. We're not trying to embarrass anybody sure. or you know freak out the patient or anything like that. It's just it's a subtle reminder. Again, it's building on the fact we believe people have the right intentions. They just need that real time feedback. So you saw a problem, obviously, as I mentioned um, with the the statistics listed by the CDC. There's a clearly a big need. There's a lot of people that are developing a hospital acquired infection. But rewind just a little bit. Take me kind of through your back. How did this whole thing come come together? Well, it's interesting. So first of all, my business partner, Bob Lee, and I, we've actually both lost loved ones to hospital-acquired infections. So it's kind of a, a personal mission for mm-hmm. both of us in addition to a business mission. Of, I've got about 23 years of experience predominantly in healthcare. I've worked for Baxter Healthcare for a number of years. I worked for Bard Medical here in Covington, Georgia. And as it turns out, uh, one of the persons that uh, had hired me from Bard uh, became a, a CEO of a startup himself up in Boston, and he was volunteering his time working at a business incubator up there. Works with a lot of the teaching institutions in uh, New England and takes the innovations that doctors and nurses come up with and pairs them up with business people and financing and grants and product development with the intent of commercializing these new technologies. So. He was volunteering his time there. He saw uh, this technology that had been developed out of Mass General, and he gave me a call. I mean, he and I had stayed close since he left Bard, and he called me and he said, hey, I, I know your background in this area. I know your experience and where you are in your career. This might be something that you want to take a look at. So I ended up uh, flying up to Boston. I met with the inventors. I went to Mass General where they had developed it. I went to the VA Medical Center outside of Boston where they've actually uh, did the proof of concept of the technology. So spoke to a lot of the folks who had hand-on experience with this technology, spoke to a number of hospital administrators, and just made the decision that this this is a real unmet need in the hospital. I mean, it's, it's something, in, infections are top of mind for every uh, hospital and hospital administrator. So there's no question that this is a need that, that has to be addressed. And it's kind of begging for a technological solution. I, I'm a big believer five years from now, we're gonna look back and say, I can't believe we used secret shoppers to monitor hand hygiene compliance. It's gonna be, technology will be a standard of care. I think it's a matter of, you know, which is the right technology that's gonna help us uh, achieve the goals here. Now, how long ago was this? So the technology actually was developed about three years ago. So it's been continued to be iterated and, uh, and improved and tested in the hospital environment. So we've, we actually have a, uh, a peer reviewed published clinical study validating the accuracy and efficacy of the technology. So I mean, a lot of those things take some time. So we wanted to make sure that we did the technology right, continued to get feedback from the people who actually used the technology and improved it. And we're, you know, we're right on the threshold of commercializing the technology. We're very close right now. So, so what is the impact when someone does develop a hospital-acquired infection, provided that they survive. Right. Um, clearly, it's a terrible thing if they don't. But I mean, from a financial impact on the system and to the patients, what does it what does it mean when we have this happen? Yeah, it's a great question, CW. So there, there's a lot of implications for infection. So obviously, there's the direct cost to treat an infection, and that that can vary depending on the severity. I mean, it could be as high as forty thousand dollars or more per incident. To your point, you've got the extended length of stay for patients. Uh, a lot of times patients are being readmitted to the hospital after getting an infection. Uh, there's a number of lawsuits, unfortunately, that take place for infections as well. It's a huge concern for hospitals. Uh, I think the biggest change most recently is uh, around the Affordable Care Act and some of the potential penalties in regards to Medicare reimbursement now that hospitals face if they don't get these infections under control. And then, you know, I think a big thing right now is hospitals are are competing. I mean, they're businesses and they're competing for patients, especially with elective surgeries. And their reputation matters. So, you know, infection rates are now publicly available information. So if somebody's doing their own diligence as to what hospital they want to get their knee replaced, for instance, you know, you can go into Hospital Compare or Health Grades or one of those sites and you can actually look up this information and, and get that kind of feedback. So it makes a difference. So there's a lot of elements when you when you build it all together. I mean, it can be millions and millions of dollars for hospitals that don't get this under control. I'm actually one of those uh, uh, hospital-born survivors, okay. infection survivors. I had a staph infection after a ACL replacement. Oh, jeez. So, which led to, I don't even think I've told you no, this story. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I had an ACL replaced in 2000, in the year 2000, in which I got a staph infection within... Um, gosh, probably nine days mm. after the, the surgery was first done. Scary. 
and um, then had to have three subsequent for debridement wow. and Picline in my heart for Picline for nine months was on antibiotics for 18. Wow. Um, wow. Did you have osteomyelitis or was it just continuing to affect the, the surgery side? They just couldn't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So I actually luckily did not have to have the ACL replaced. Yeah. Just missed it. But, you know, I was in the hospital, almost died overnight because they it took that long to discover it. I, you you know, septic? I'm, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it did not go septic. I, they just caught it. But, um, you know, I was one of those. I've been an athlete my whole life. And mm-hmm. I, I kept saying to the, the physical therapist, I can't believe how painful this is that right. I cannot work through this. And, you know, I was taking so much pain reliever. My gums started bleeding and I couldn't understand why I, I hurt. So I'm like, I can't, I'm not a wimp. I, this right. hurts so bad. Why is this hurting so much? Yeah, right. You feel helpless. So, you know. Yeah. So anyway, um, all of those hospital infection rates were not available right. when I had the surgery. Um, all of this infection prevention, even washing the hands, was not really a protocol or even a standard of care at that point. Correct. Either. So, um, full disclosure. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, what a what a story. I, I can't imagine having that happen. And to go through that process, I mean, just like we were talking about here, you can see from a patient directly, and of course you had your story about losing a family mm-hmm. member, actually. Uh, it's a significant impact on on the experience and, and can have devastating effects financially and emotionally. And, and Well, uh, not to mention you know. having it happen to a healthcare reporter yeah. for the right. Metro newspaper where it happened. So, um, in fact, when the doctor actually realized what I did for a living, he Yikes. said shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, he was very apologetic, which actually helped the whole process. Sure. But Yep. So where mm-hmm. are you in the process? I, from what I said when we were talking the other day about your solution, that mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're in the early phase. You do have some, some, at least one or two facilities out there that are, you know, yeah, so testing we, it for you and yep, getting ready just, to go. We, yeah, we, we're right on the th- uh, threshold of commercialization. So we're, we're actively raising funding right now to finish the last mile of product development, if you will. We just finished up a trial at, at Mercy Healthcare up in St. Louis. It's a 35-plus hospital system who's very interested in standardizing on one technology across their entire healthcare system. And they were really impressed. And, I mean, they're actually considering investing in the company as well. They want to see this to market as soon as possible. So, you know, we need to do some industrial design so the transmitters, they look like prototypes, so we want to make it look attractive in the hospital environment. And then the badge, we're going to take one more iteration of the badge. The goal is to integrate our badge with the existing hospital ID badge so that clinicians don't have to wear two separate devices because compliance is is everything. If you're not wearing the badge, Mm -hmm. you're not able to monitor and give that kind of Mm -hmm. feedback. So that's what we intend to do, and then we're going to obviously uh, beef up our sales and marketing effort from there as well. And so as because we don't have anyone, this is not a television program, it's right. basically listeners, describe to us what this looks like. That, like if you could actually sketch, like explain what it looks like. Yeah, let me take you kind of through the work, work workflow. So there's three components. So there is the small lightweight badge. Right now it's about the size of a matchbook. It's really small. So we can easily add a, a picture window to the bottom of it where you can slide in your picture ID and your key card access and you know have the little lavalier where you can pull the string out to scan your badge if you need to. So the clinician will wear that. There is a ultrasound transmitter on every soap and alcohol dispensers. And that has a small vibration sensor that actually attaches either in or on any soap dispenser. So it's agnostic. It doesn't matter which system dispenser you're using. And then the third component, as I mentioned earlier, is a a bedside transmitter that creates kind of an an invisible protection zone around the patient's bed. And we really built this around the World Health Organization guidelines for hand hygiene. There there was a publication called The Five Moments of Hand Hygiene. And the most important times for hand washing are, as you would imagine, immediately before and immediately after coming in contact with the patient or something in the patient's environment, something that might be attached to them or nearby. So the key is, is it's not necessarily that you want to measure somebody when they enter and exit the room. You want to know when they go to approach that patient, have they washed their hands within the past 15 seconds, 30 seconds. So the way the technology works is when the healthcare worker enters the room and they dispense the soap, the vibration tells that transmitter to shoot a very short pulse of ultrasound, now identifying that person as having clean hands. But then at that point, they're on the clock because it doesn't do any good to wash your hands when you enter the room and then you spend the next couple of minutes walking around touching the keyboard, picking up a remote control, doing something that recontaminates yourself prior to going to the patient. 
the key is immediately before going to the patient, you need to wash your hands. So after they get the, basically the token that says they have clean hands, they've got about 30 seconds to approach the patient. When they enter that protection zone, it reads their badge, and it says, has this person washed their hands within the last 30 seconds? If the answer is no, then it gives them that friendly beep reminder to give them a chance to be compliant. Same thing if they go from one patient to the next within the same room. That's often a concern of cross-contamination between patients. So again, if you don't wash your hands in between, it'll provide the reminder. And then when you leave the patient zone altogether. And then ultimately, when you go out into the hallway, there is a data transfer device that will wake up the badge. It'll pull the data, and it'll port it to the cloud. So it's available near real time. So depending on how quickly people want feedback, it's available for the management staff or infection control, whoever wants to review that information. So it's basically measuring vibration. So is there any way for employees to actually scam the system just by doing this? Well, not by holding your hand at it. So I, I think almost any technology, if somebody tries hard enough, they can game the system. So again, we believe people intend to do the right thing. So if you were to come in and punch the soap dispenser uh, rather than actually dispense the soap on your hands, then you could game it. I would hope that people would self-police themselves in the hospital, and that wouldn't be the end game. It, it's hard to design out somebody that's really determined to game the system. So th that's about the only way that they can really game the system for the most part. But the key is, is there's no extra steps. If people are doing the right thing, it's completely invisible. They have no idea that they're even wearing the technology for that matter. And is it just hand washing, or is it actually measuring then the alcohol? I mean, what's the difference between hand washing right. and then the alcohol before going to the patient? Well, e either either one is fine, and it, it depends on the patient's conditions. For instance, if, a, if it's a C. diff patient, you know, alcohol won't kill C. diff. It's a spore, so you actually physically need to use soap and water to wash the spore off of your hands. We Each one of these transmitters has a unique identifier, so we can actually program it. So if it's a C. diff patient in there, if they use alcohol instead of soap and water, they'll get a beep and remind them, hey, you, you need to go back and use soap and water. So, you know, th there's, there's unique identifiers on each one of these transmitters. So you can begin to measure more than just hand hygiene compliance. You can see how many times a certain patient is visited, how much time they spend within the room or in that patient zone. You could do a Lean Six Sigma analysis around the soap dispensers. So this dispenser is not getting used at all, and this one's getting used a thousand times a day. Perhaps we need to think about where we're placing the soap dispensers, because that's part of the problem, mm -hmm. too, is you need availability of that soap and alcohol when you need it, right? It needs to be close to the patient and, and very available. Mm. I mean, it's very, I mean, you could begin to look at certain uh, DRGs and realize that this type of patient requires way more nursing time than a different kind of patient, and you can look out and start to do some scheduling. Maybe we need additional temps in this time because of the patient mix that we have in the ICU. So there's all kinds of interesting data that can be pulled from this technology. And then, you know, hand washing in healthcare is just the beginning. If you can think about anywhere where you're concerned whether people are washing their hands when they're supposed to. Like public restaurants exactly. would be really great. Oh, it's great that the yeah. sign, yeah, I mean, it's great that the sign is there that says that all employees must wash their hands. Wouldn't you actually want to know if <laughs> it takes I can't tell place? you how many times I've yeah. seen that. Well, there's actually, there was a study done, I think that they put a picture of the manager in there Somehow, hand washing went up. Just, just, just that visual. <laughs> big brothers watching. Big brothers watching. But uh, yeah, I, you know, the other issue is I think families. Yes, absolutely. So um, you know, if you have lots of family members who are coming in and they're not necessarily washing their hands, and um, that's a whole other level of complication. Yeah, I agree, Rick. And and we're actually talking about beginning to badge some of the family members and maybe having a kiosk when they enter the hospital that they have to get a credential yeah, that's a and they have idea. to watch a small video that says, hey, here's, here's this technology we've put in place to protect you and your loved ones. Uh, here's why hand washing is important. Here's what this badge is for. Because you're right. I think family members, and it, there's a whole other study that needs to be done about the amount of bacteria infections that, that family members oh, right. and friends bring into the hospital yeah, as well as cross-contamination. And what about shoes? What's yeah. brought in on shoes? Right, right. Yeah, very interesting. You know, there's a study, um, there's a lot of work around a thing called positive deviance, um, mm -hmm. looking at, uh, but they were doing a study on MRSA, and they found that doctors just wearing their tie, male oh, yeah. doctors. They lean down. They lean and down. Oh, yeah. And the tie touches the patient. Um, so in this one hospital, they, the doctors started wearing short sleeve shirts and no ties right. and no white coats, because the white coat is also a tremendous carrier. Well, and jewelry, too. 
Yeah. yeah. So these are, I mean, these these artifacts that have been part of healthcare for so long yep. <laughs> um, actually are contributing to higher rates of infection. I was just um, uh, had a, a meeting in one of the hospitals here, and which shall remain nameless, but it was interesting to me how many of the nurses were in full scrubs with basically protective um, netting on their hair mm-hmm. and also over their shoes, and they were definitely surgical nurses coming out of surgery outside smoking. Yeah, wow. Mm. Um, and so I wonder if they actually went back in and changed everything or if no, they were actually uh, coming no, in don't. and out. That, that's, uh, I mean, I think you'd be frightened to find out how, probably not. We've so been that, talking, that's scary. We've been talking with... Uh, experts on the hospital-acquired conditions, uh, Jeff Klein of Hangenics and Rick Stone, Chief Innovation Officer for Sinensis, each of them bringing a solution towards trying to prevent some of these or reduce the rate at which they occur. And, um, you know, as it relates to Hangenics, Jeff, um, where where do you sit now with regards to getting started? What do you need yet to, yep. to, to get you there to that commercialization point? Well, so there's three things. So first of all, the capital. So we've talked about that. And, and it's, you know, it's a tricky spot where we are in the life cycle of the business. You know, we're w- well past seed money and friends and family, but we're pre-revenue yet. So, you know, a lot of private equity and venture capital, they don't want to invest early. So we're really kind of in the angel investor sweet spot right now. So I think, you know, getting access to those people, because there are a number of people that are interested in investing in this kind of technology and just don't necessarily know that it's out there. So getting the investment to finish the last mile of product development and begin to commercialize would be helpful. We're still looking for additional uh, hospital partners. You know, we want uh, a hospital here that is innovative and early adopter technology, understands the product development process. So, you know, it might not be perfect the first time you put it in. There's an iterative process and have the right champion to drive this forward. So we're definitely looking for some hospitals within the Atlanta area that want to partner with us to finish up the product development. And then the last component would be potential uh, channel partners or strategic partners, whether it be a health informatics uh, type of company that wants to work with us or an infection control company. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it makes sense for us to partner with somebody who already has large footprint in hospitals that already has feet in the street that may have some brand equity already rather than us building a massive sales force we can work in partnership with some other companies out there so we'd love to talk to some companies who might want to partner with us as well and and as far as your last mile adopters to kind of help you take you through that last zone of testing Mm -hmm. do you have traction or how's that going here well, Mercy's been very committed to us, so we're we're going to continue to to do a few more trials at Mercy at some of their different hospitals. We actually, starting next week, we're doing uh, a trial outside of Amsterdam, Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Holland. So we've we have been talking to a potential strategic partner, a company actually has invested a hundred grand in us to participate in in our next three trials, and they actually brought this hospital. It's one of their partner hospitals in Europe. So they they're envisioning that this would be launchable in Europe as well as in U.S. I mean, it's a global problem. It's not just the U.S. that's having a problem mm-hmm. with hand hygiene. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, continuing to look for potential partners here in the Atlanta area as well. And to go back to the model of what you're trying to offer, it's not that you're trying to sell badges to the hospitals. That's not the case. It's really that you're going to provide the equipment that's necessary, and it's more of a licensing access yeah, to, to that solution. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because, I mean, the, one of the biggest challenges for hospital is they're capital-constrained. So our, our thought is exactly what you would say at CW, is, is we would offer this as kind of a subscription service. So we'll bring in all the hardware. They don't have to pay for the hardware. They'll pay, let's say, a monthly price per bed, and then we'll provide all the data and the monitoring service for them. So, yeah, I mean, capital constraint is a huge challenge for hospitals right now. And I, I think you can make an incredible business case for this because, uh, actually, I think the CDC numbers are low, Yeah. yeah. Uh, extremely low. And um, and I think you, if you can very clearly draw a, a line between uh, the cost to hospitals, both in, in the increased uh, time with the patient having to be there, mm-hmm. re- uh, reduced reimbursement, right. yep. penalties uh, that are tied to the Affordable Care Act uh, and CDC, uh, I think mean CMS. So I think that there, the business case is there, and, I that's really, and I think you can clearly articulate that. Um, and they, they, they should know at every hospital what it's costing them. And, and that, those numbers are there. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, I, and extra days are a big problem. When yeah. we're talking about capitated mm-hmm. payments, for example, sure. where you, you only get this much for this procedure. That's and right. if, if it's like someone like Diana, they have a, an incident like that that draws it out and really ramps up the acuity over where it was planned to be. Yeah. 
that's a dramatic hit yeah. just right there, not to mention all the extra costs yeah. associated yeah. with treatment. When that happened to Diana, didn't matter because the hospitals got paid, right? Right. Yeah. But I, today, that's different. Yeah. I think one of, the ho- one of the challenges is that I think a lot of hospitals don't think that they have a problem because they'll report a compliance rate in the 90s. You know, the Joint Commission standard, it's 90%. So I think through observation and the Hawthorne effect, I think, and the small level of sampling, I think it's easy to fool yourself that you're in the 90% percent Well, it's not change. a fooling. It's a gaming. Right. I mean, speaking right. of gaming the system, and, you know, we, we, there's been articles that have written about how hospitals actually do that and what they actually have to report and what they don't. Right. Well, the, the national average is around 45, 40 to 45% hand washing. And the best, hosp- exactly. the best hospitals, maybe 70%. That's the right. The best. So, um, you know, if you implement this technology, it's, it's not just a silver bullet. It's kind of a bundled approach. So education, training, process improvement, yeah. in addition to the technology, I think the rates could be a lot higher and they're more sustainable when you have a system that gives you real-time right. feedback and like that. That's one of the reasons why I thought this was going to be an interesting conversation, just because with Sinensis, I know one of the focuses for your organization is is kind of a cultural shift. It's changing behaviors mm-hmm. and focusing on that side. So here's something that yep. kind of gives you some up, up feedback um, along with the, the training and greater focus and awareness that you're working with your clients on. Yeah, so culture, we know, is, is a huge factor in harm. And so uh, when, when root cause analyses are done after a, patient, after a sentinel event in which a patient has died, uh, the Joint Commission said about 70% of those are attributable to poor teamwork, poor communication, mm-hmm. leadership, poor leadership, right. and, and culture. So when you begin to throw those into the mix, um, so you have to ask yourself when you go into a hospital and they have such low compliance rates, What's happening culturally? Right. Uh, where where is the mindset and the focus on safety, and uh, and ironically, it's often not very present at, at the executive level at the C-suite. Uh, it's not showing up on their dashboard right. in a very real way. So that, and um, so we we take a hard look at that, and we we uh, there's an assessment tool that uh, that uh, the um, uh, ARC Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality developed. A, it's a, it's a cultural survey of patient safety, and we do a lot of work on that. And, you know, one of the interesting things is one of, one of the factors in that survey is about reporting either harm or near misses. Mm-hmm. Okay? Actually, I think not washing your hands is like a near miss. Right, right. <laughs> um, and, but it's, it's invisible. Yeah, indirect. It's, it's yeah. indirect yeah. and invisible. And um, and hospitals most that's that's the one dimension where staff uh, mark hospitals down across the board across the country as the low, one of the lowest in terms of people are not reporting, right. um, and so if you don't have a culture where you're learning, so if you don't have the data yeah. on hand washing, you can't say okay, gosh, we're at forty percent. What do we need to do to address this as a team, as an organization? Absolutely. I mean, if, I mean, our belief is that you you have to have senior management buy-in with any kind of technological implementation like this. I mean, you've got to, they got to walk the walk and they've got to believe in it and it's got to infiltrate the entire hospital, that mentality of quality and hand washing. Yeah. And they need to be wearing the badges themselves. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned about leadership is that when leaders are visibly rounding and are coming down to the floor and, and, and authentically engaging with staff, not coming by for a fly through, and how's everything going, Bob? Good to see you. Well, keep up the good work. But if they come through with an authentic attitude and approach to saying, what's going on here? What are the areas that I, as a leader, can support you and your team to help improve the safety of our patients? Uh, and even visiting patients, if they're there with the badge and they are demonstrating that behavior, uh, that sends a very powerful sign and signal to, to the staff. Well, I think a lot of it's about also giving them actionable information. So we can give them very specific. So it it might be the night shift that's having more of a problem than the day shift. It might be this particular unit or might be this specialty. So you can really drill into the data and then you can begin to tailor some of your training programs to the specific needs that you have. So why why make everybody take training on hygiene if, if half the hospital is doing a great job at it? And we're also a believer in positive reinforcement. So Let's not use this technology as, as a hammer or as a gotcha, but as a way of recognizing and rewarding people that are doing a good job as well. Yeah. You know? So I could see even in a team yep. huddle. Right, On absolutely. Monday morning, you got a team huddle. Okay, guys, we got our stats from last week. Right. Well, um, you know, we're, we're kind of variable. Yep. You know, we're not, hitting, we're not hitting it out of the park here. 
what do you think we need to do as a team to improve? What's exactly. our goal for this week? Exactly. And so we're at 64%. Can we get it to 75% or 80%? And um, Oh, I agree. I mean, at Mercy, we did, we had a little March Madness competition because it was during that time of year. So we had one unit versus the other one. And they, they really got into it. They embraced it. And it was, it was really close. And we gave out some Starbucks gift cards at yeah. the end of it. You know, I did some work uh, with a healthcare system in North Carolina a number of years ago, and they had a, an event in which a young girl died from an infection, mm -hmm. and it was an acquired infection, and it was certainly attributable to poor hand washing. And so throughout this healthcare system, they, they in a concerted way, every, every screensaver had a reminder to wash right. your hands. They, so that, that became, and the CEO in tears got up in front of, the, of all of his staff at a major meeting and tearfully told the story of what happened and said, no longer under my watch. So right. they made a concerted commitment. So I, and, and our experience has been if you don't, as you say, bring leadership along, mm -hmm. if they're not committed, um, very hard to expect uh, the frontline staff to get, to get on board. I agree, and I think you have to continue to refresh the message and use different vehicles for creating awareness. Because sure. people, you know, there's always that spike immediately when you have these yeah. campaigns, and then people resort back to their normal yeah, behavior they, they, every they, time. They fall back right. into, you know, the other thing that you said that was I think was interesting is that we found is that there's not a, um, a blanket culture in an organization. Culture is local. Pockets. Yep. So you can go to the med surge floor, and you find a particular culture. It's very different than the ED, than the OR. And so you will see variability around mm -hmm. this issue. And so to address it is not to address it hospital-wide, right. but to be able to have data, like you said, and to be able to say, gosh, here's a hot spot. Mm -hmm. exactly. Let's go down and work with that team and, uh, and engage them. And, and, and one of the things that we've found is that the leadership of those teams, the mid-level manager, is a crucial cog in the wheel. Absolutely. And if, so if you have that mid-level manager on board and they're engaged, Yep. Um, you'll find that their team will follow along. If they're not, um, they set the tone for the rest of the team. So there, it's a complicated yeah, totally affair. Agree. It's uh, the tech. We, we're a strong believer that technology is going to play a key role, and I think the technologies, like you have, are, are going to be crucial. And you still have to come along and start working with teams and engaging mm -hmm. them. Um, and and I don't think it's so much training, but it is awareness mm -hmm. and engagement, and it has to be a continual part of the conversation. I agree. We're talking with Jeff Klein of Hangenics and Rick Stone of Sinensis. And take us through a little bit of kind of the Sinensis story. How did, how did you get started and, and uh, kind of what brought your solution to the table? Well, well Diana knows Steve Powell, uh, our CEO, very well. And, uh, and Steve is a pilot and had spent most of his career not just flying planes, but also looking at safety in cockpits. And if you look at why planes crash, they usually crash for one of a couple reasons, poor teamwork and poor communication, even when there's mechanical failure. So they're getting data back, and uh, maybe the co-pilot <laughs> is seeing that they're getting ready to fly into the mountain, uh, but uh, doesn't feel empowered to say anything, because <laughs> the pilot is, the, he's a senior pilot, he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and Steve had an event with his father, so, and I think we've all uh, probably, I don't think there's anyone maybe who has not been touched in some way by harm in hospitals. Uh, and I can raise my yeah, hand with that. Would bear that out. And um, and his father was uh, suffering with cancer and went in for some treatment and some things went went badly with the treatment and and Steve was so struck it was he was trying to get answers about just how poor the teamwork and communication and all the things that he knew that works well in a cockpit were not being done in a hospital. Another high risk environment, very high risk environment. So, are you guys using the kind of the check checklist manifesto? Well, yeah. So checklists are interesting, and we we're real big proponents of checklists. But you know what? People will do workarounds on checklists. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you can build in the technological systems. We were doing some work with a hospital uh, in which the the Pixis machine, which mm -hmm. is where they keep all the pharma, you know, the high level drugs. Um, the system was set up that you could not pull drugs without putting information in about the patient. And in this particular ED, when they got slammed, and uh, the nurses would, they, the nurses yeah. would uh, find a way because maybe the patient wasn't in the system yet. So they would, with intention of coming back and putting it in. Maybe uh, sometimes they would even put it under a different patient's name. Wow. Now, talk about risky behavior. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, everything that the, and they've, this is probably happening eight to 10 times a week. Mm. 
that where there were they were having to go back and trace back and find out what happened here and correct it for billing and other purposes. They had not harmed anybody yet. Yeah. I can see how that yeah. would happen. I can see w- w- in in that particular instance why uh, a clinician would say this is what we got to do because this person really needs this. We're slammed. The patient's not. Well, it's going to take time. So, blah, so, blah, blah, blah. so so I think it's about consequences, yeah. and I want to come back to consequences mm-hmm. of hand washing. When you don't wash your hands and you deal with a patient, you don't you do not experience immediate consequences right, as yeah. a caregiver. So you it's invisible to you in a mm-hmm. sense. Uh, that patient who gets the infection and either gets very ill or dies may not you may not even be there at that shift and know that because of you maybe that patient died. So there is no clear awareness of that. And in this case, they I think that the consequences of, of what could happen were not visible for them. So you know, and we talked a little yesterday, we have this product called StoryCare, where we develop these audio stories to engage, they're really story simulations. We created a story in which a nurse was, was dealing with three patients. One had an allergy to codeine. And she was pulling drugs, and when she gets a call, there's a, accident victims have come in, they need her right away in triage. She's slammed, she doesn't put information in, she goes and dispenses uh, uh, painkillers and uh, gives the wrong one to the patient who has the allergy to codeine, who goes into anaphylactic shock, and at the end of the story, he collapses in the hall in front of another nurse, and that's the end of the story. Yep. Well, you can imagine what that nurse would have thought. This person's probably having a heart event. And by the time they, and there was no data in the system to have figured out what was going on. So that story alone had such an impact on them that they went from 10 events a week to one a month. So it pretty much extinguished the behavior and it sustained. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it has something to do with understanding consequences. And and part of the beep, I think, that that is, is it is a reminder, there's a consequence for me as a healthcare professional if I don't wash my hands. It's invisible to me. And, and, and that's the important thing. Yeah, and I want to make sure that I, that I mention that we're usually talking about outliers. The vast, vast, vast majority of nurses are doing the right thing. I mean, they've got a very hard job, and they have to move at a fast pace. And you can understand why sometimes they look for, for shortcuts or ways to make things easier so that they can accomplish a lot over the course of a shift. There's a lot going on. So I want to make sure that we recognize that. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. and it's, like the, it's like the police, too. You know, there's a few outliers yeah. that do some bad things. I don't want... Uh, you yeah. bad rap to the nurses Yeah, at all. so, you know, there's a, a phenomenon that, w- that we witness. I have a colleague, Dan, uh, Dan Cohen. They, they are, uh, he works, he's the chief medical officer with a company called Datix that we have an association with. They, they do medical reporting software. So I, I, uh, I mean, error reporting. So I have an error I can go in and put in the system. Um, he talks about complacency. And, uh, and he's witnessed a great deal of complacency around procedures and processes. Mm-hmm. All the things that are in place, that are, you know, they're there, but there is, there is, a, there is what we, we call, there's, there's a deviation, and it's normalized deviation, where people start to deviate from practices slowly, and they don't see a consequence. Mm-hmm. They go, God, this, this procedure or process, it's, it, I don't know why we have this rule. It, it doesn't seem to make any difference. And after a while, they're not doing the process mm-hmm. or procedure. And then they, they take another step. And finally, it, they are a mile away from the original pro- And then someone's harmed. And um, so you have this normalized deviance that um, we as humans have a tendency just to do because mm-hmm. we're smart. Uh, we're smarter than the system. And uh, we don't like rules, whatever the reason. And it's... Um, in some ways, it's very benign, but it leads to harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think people don't like to be watched either. I mean, I think that's one of the challenges for us is getting people kind of over the hurdle of yeah, using the, this technology. Yeah, the big brother is there. And yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's why, you know, we're very involved with the nurses. We want the nurses to be driving the product development of this. I mean, at the mm-hmm. end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be, and mm-hmm. physicians too, obviously. And by the way, the physicians statistically are worse, worse. than the nurses from a Much hand hygiene worse. standpoint. So, I mean, our key is, you know, when we're trying to understand the customer experience, there's multiple customers, but the, the nurses who are caring for the patients are our primary audience. So mm-hmm. it's very important, you know, at the end of these trials, we have focus groups where we get everybody in the room and say, you know, what was your thought? What could we make it, how could we make it mm-hmm. better? How could we make it easier for you? How they reacted to the product? It, I, I think it varies. Like you would imagine in, in most change management, there's always the, the vocal objectors. Uh, what I'm finding is that a lot of the, a lot of the younger folks who are more embracing of technology 
are really getting into it. And a number of folks, they wanted their rates. Hey, tell me what my rate was at the end of the day because mm-hmm. I want to get better. So and I think, and those are the, the people that you want to embrace and focus on, and, and they will be the leaders that will drive change in the rest of the organization. Right. And I good. know that's one of the things that, uh, Rick, you, you focus on heavily at Sinensis is the engagement side of things, both with the clinicians, uh, and you, we talked the other day about the middle managers, how obviously the hospital leadership at the top has to be committed and, and say, we're going to make this a focus, and we're going to pay attention to these incidents, these hospital-acquired injuries that are happening. Uh, but but the execution of it comes really down to the level of the, the charge nurse, for example, or the, the middle manager who's kind of right there on the floor, maybe even taking care of patients themselves. At the same time, they've got some management responsibilities. And then the other component of that is that you also begin to help patients and their families be able to self-advocate to some extent. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the book that, uh, that we've just come out with, The Patient Survival Handbook, um, and it really was based on blogs that Steve wrote for a few years uh, for Diana Sherwick. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we started looking at all these, and I said, you know, I think we got a book here. And um, so we wove them together and built uh, some, some sections. And, but the, the basic premise is, is, that, um, is how do we engage patients to be part of the team? And I think patients traditionally, uh, our parents' generations never thought of themselves as part of the healthcare team. Right. They were they were someone being acted on, and there was a relatively passive. And and you know we're all variable. And I, I think that um, younger generations are becoming more actively engaged with their own care and mm-hmm. and realizing that they have to be as much responsible for what the outcome is as as the caregivers. So if we put the patient as at the center of the team and the family member at the center of the team, then you have an opportunity to essentially have them be another set of eyes and uh, asking good questions, being observant and say, um, did you wash your hands? Right. Or you washed your hands, but I saw that you then wiped your hand on your, <laughs> on your white coat. Could you wash your hands again? Yeah. And that probably would, that would be missed on the system. Right, yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're you know... Um, and so you, you have this opportunity to have the family member become much more central in their care. And, and we believe that when family members are asking questions, not assuming that their healthcare professionals are doing, always knowing what they're doing because they're busy and they do make errors, they're human, mm-hmm. uh, we will see harm reduce them. And it's just one piece of the pie, but it's a very important piece of the pie. Um, so how do we become more active in our care? So. It's kind of like making the patient and their families be the secret shoppers that's always there. Well, in a sense, that's correct. Yeah. So they're another set of eyes. They're they're maybe the last bulwark, you know, you know, so they're, 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 you know, just to, to say that, that drug doesn't look like what my mother was getting yesterday. You sure that's the right drug? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And, And then... Maybe they made a mistake at the pharmacy. Yeah. Well, I think there's so much more access to information now, too. People can do their own research. I mean, there's much more transparency out sure. there. I mean, back a generation ago, people didn't actually think about which hospital should I go to. They just went to the closest one, or they were told by their doctor right. where they're going to go. Now they've got the autonomy to make their own yeah, decisions and do data. their own research. But even having all that research and even knowing that as a patient and a caregiver that we are to be advocates, I'm still surprised how many people just go to the closest hospital available and how many people don't advocate for themselves. Yeah. So what do you do about those people? I mean, the people in this room we're not speaking to. How do you actually get like, have those people that aren't going to be advocates or don't even have that occur to them? How do you actually yeah. reach those people? Well, um, that's, that's a big challenge. You know, obviously, if you're not motivated, right. <laughs> you're not going to read the book. You're not going to... If it, if your personal style is such that you don't you don't actually assert yourself, um, I think there's a place for a new role in healthcare, and that is for an advocate. And mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen that role showing up in various places. Uh, some work I did at Novant Health, uh, they had what they called a navigator. And um, so if you don't have a family advocate, and and we don't if we don't prime par- uh, families and patients to say this is a very unsafe environment, the dangerous environment that you're getting ready to enter into. There's a great potential for harm, and we're committed to doing as much as we can, but you also have to be committed. But maybe we have a, a, a third-party advocate who is there for people who don't have a family mm-hmm. member. How many patients end up in a hospital don't have someone watching out for them? And that's, that, that's the challenge, and, and I think you could even make a, biz, a business case for that, is that their care, they would probably actually get out of the hospital faster. Uh, there would be fewer errors. Because you have some another set of eyes, 
Um, but I think I think that's also the challenge. Um, I, I yeah, think, don't disagree with you. Yeah, yeah, I think most of our parents would be, um, at least mine, I remember when mine were sick, they were horrified or mortified that I would actually even question what the doctors right. were saying. Right. Yep. And it's I think a respect thing. Yeah, it's, it's a, a respect thing. thing. Yep. And I think that's not the case for most of us around the same age in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the case with our generation. Well, and then right. you get labeled as a as you're the difficult patient right. in room yeah. 303, or you're the difficult parent or a family member, a daughter who suddenly, you know, my father lived in 98 and and uh, and lived pretty healthily, but he had he was having more hospital vis- visits and. And at some point, uh, he was in, he had punctured a lung after falling and breaking six ribs and driving himself to the hospital um, and wanting to drive home. And they prevented him from doing that. Uh, But we discovered he had a puncture. He was in the hospital. And I was concerned. I know a lot about um, pressure ulcers. Yeah. Okay. And uh, our skin is another, another organ. And so people, and uh, you become much more vulnerable the older you, there's a number of factors that have to do with your vulnerability for this. You could be a young person and get a pressure ulcer, but um, I was concerned because he was lying around, he'd been there for over a week, and I asked the nurse, I said, are you turning my father every two hours? Mm-hmm. And she looked at me with, with just disdain. <laughs> yes, we are. Right. I didn't trust that she was, but I, I was concerned because I think I felt that he had, he was vulnerable. So, um, there's a change of there needs to be a change of culture also because um, uh, nursing environments. There's just a great article that just came out about how how negative the culture is in nursing. You know, they have a, there's an old saying: nurses eat their young. They do. And there's there's hazing. There, I mean, there are things that are going on in the culture of uh, in the nursing culture that are concerning as well. So these are all big issues. Don't have I don't have ready answers. Right, right. <laughs> I wish I had the, well, the magic pixie dust. When we don't. spoke the other day, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of trying to kind of shift culture and shift the, the approach to um, a Sentinel event, for example, um, was to actually have a debriefing after the fact. Yeah. So here's a simple a simple tool that actually came out of uh, really out of the military. You don't go on a you don't even go on a training exercise without debriefing it in the military. You know, a flight exercise. You're constantly debriefing everything to learn, and I would say that hospitals are not learning learning organizations today. Um, and so we were working with a number of obstetric groups that are in North Carolina, Virginia, and uh, they were doing zero debriefing, especially after emergency sections, and. Uh, so we, we looked at how do we engage them. So we taught them how to debrief. We used simulation as a way of teaching them that. And then we coached them and reinforced that behavior. And they went back to their units. And they went from 0% of the time to 70% of the time debriefing after an emergency section. And as a result, reduced uh, infant mortality by 16% over a three-year period, which is a sig- you know We saved a lot of lives because they were learning. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, gee, that didn't go well. We had, you know, maybe it was a shoulder dystocia or some other kind of uh, complication in birth. And they were better prepared the next time because they paused to reflect on what happened. So I think that if we want to see healthcare begin to transform, even taking something simple like debriefing, and this is a change of culture because no one has time. We're so too busy. Right. And we're understaffed. And everybody's running around with their heads cut off. If, they don't, if hospitals don't shift that, because you can look at all the other high reliability organizations out there, and you'll discover they are debriefing after events. Why not in healthcare? Well, it's just it's a cultural thing, and that that's where the shift's going to have to happen. And if we if you just institute that one thing, you would see harm rates going down. You're right. I mean, it's got to be real time feedback. I mean, yeah, if someone gets an infection, right? Let's right. let's get together as a team and debrief what happened here. Let's not wait till the end of the month. We yeah, get our rates and then try to. You know, do some forensics to figure out what happened yeah, uh, weeks see. ago. And yeah, please it has together. to be in real time. I agree. Yeah. And also to have it on the record. Um, a lot of hospitals are afraid of that, that mm-hmm. lawsuit, but to ha- actually have it on the record, the debriefing right. on the record. Mm-hmm. You know, we've actually had you, I mean, this has been such a good discussion that CW and I haven't actually mm-hmm. jumped in and said, we've never had an overview of what Sinensis does. So if you could actually kind of back up and actually mm-hmm. talk about, you know, what you do, and you know where you kind of play a part in this whole healthcare ecosystem, okay. that would be really helpful. Well, I would say that our main focus is on what we call human factor science. So we're looking at human behavior and human factors and how those impact care and safety, very simply. And um, so I think everything we've been talking today is about human behavior. Right. And um, so there, there are lots of ways to approach 
changing behavior, but behavior is sometimes difficult to change. But so this example of, of debriefing, we changed a behavior that changed an outcome. So one of the things that uh, we use, the survey of patient safety culture, is a, is a very strong analytic tool for helping us understand what's going on here. Is it safe? And there are some of the dimensions. Uh, it turns out, you know, there's a lot of discussion today about hospitals become high, becoming high-reliability organizations. What they really need is high-reliability teams because you know, it's the teams that really do the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we were talking uh, yesterday is that you have a lot of experts in hospitals. They've been trained. They have extensive training. Um, you have a team of experts, but they're not an expert team. And we know that uh, delivering safe care is a, team, is a team sport. It's not an individual yeah. sport. And where most of the harm happens is, is in a handoff from the emergency right. room to, uh, to the ICU. Uh, uh, something's not communicated. And an important piece of information is not communicated because we're so busy and we forgot to say, oh, yeah, she, she's got an allergy to this or whatever the question was. Oh, did she take her uh, prophylactic back, uh, antibiotic at the time but right before the surgery? And that's another thing that's been discovered for knee surgeries and hip replacements. So there's a lot of procedural things, but if people don't follow the procedures. So we come in and use that, that assessment process. And then we identify where we think the, uh, the low-lying fruit is for them. But it's usually working with the middle managers, working with the teams, but it's also working with the executive leadership. Mm -hmm. And there are very evidence-based behaviors that we know when people do these things, things get better. So uh, we come in and we, we spend a lot of time coaching. And so we both train. And as you know, Steve was on the team that developed a thing called Team Steps, which the DOD looked at, at, at the rates of harm in, in, in uh, DOD medicine, Army, Navy, Air mm -hmm. Force, is probably the biggest healthcare system in the world. Right. Between serving both the, uh, our soldiers and their families, mm -hmm. it's huge. And, um, and they found that most of the, there's, we're doing tremendous amounts of harm, and there's been a lot of expose. The New York Times has been writing about this recently, and you know, so we know they have issues. And so uh, Steve was on the team that de took all the lessons from high-risk industries and said, let's develop them into a, a tool. Team STEP stands for Team Strategies and Tools to Enhance Performance and Patient Safety, hmm. if you can get that out of your nice. mouth. Um, and that's how Steve got the business going, was then he got the contract with DOD to start spreading this throughout the uh, DOD medicine. Um, here's the challenge with that. I will tell you, we, we will come and work with an organization. We're, we're not doing so much Team Steps anymore because it's freeware. Uh, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality owns it. It's a government government agency, and there are online courses for free. Anybody can go learn. I mean, there's it's not rocket science, okay, to do a debrief or do a huddle or uh, or or stop the line. And one of the big things in there is stopping the line. So I'm I'm working. Maybe I'm a, your assistant. I'm a tech, and I'm with you. And we walk in the room. I go, uh, hey, right. you didn't wash your hands. You need to wash your hands. Um, but it gets harder if I'm a tech and you're a physician, a high-powered physician surgeon, and I go, a doc, you didn't wash your hands. Yeah, it's tough. You might want to okay. have a code word or something. Yeah, or or doc, uh, <laughs> I, doc, I think there's a, there's a tear in your glove. I think yeah. you need to uh, step away from the from the from the patient and rescrub. So if you do not have a culture where people are empowered to do that, and uh, so you have to work both at the top and the bottom. So you can teach people these tools. So we have, oh yeah, yeah, we've got every, we went through Team Steps training. And then we do the, the, the survey of patient safety culture and there's two dimensions, teamwork within and teamwork across units. And they're sucking wind. They're two decimals to the right of, 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 of the national standard. You know. and, that, and, and what we say is that you know, being average is not being good. And so what happens is executives, go, oh, look, we're in the, you know, you know we're, we're, with, we're sort of like everybody else. Well, that means that you're really an unsafe place. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, it's about a commitment from the executive leadership to let's change. And then the question is, okay, how do we begin to do that? And so we can, we'll develop a change process and how do we manage that and move that into the organization? And we'll take that data. And as I said, culture's local. Mm -hmm. So there may be particular units, but it's also where is it going well? So we spent a lot of time about, so if you look at hand washing, mm -hmm. gosh, up on the third floor, they're, they're hitting it out of the park. They got a peer pressure. Right? They got 95. What's going on on the third floor, and how can we f discover what, learn from them 
and take that practice down to the other units. So that's this whole notion of, uh, of the positive deviance that has really got me interested. How do we change behavior? And they're, they're actually reducing MRSA rates using positive deviance. Why, are the, why on the third floor do they have no infections? Well, it turns out they're doing something different. Let's go discover and find out what they're doing. Because it's right, it, it could be quite simple. And what level of the organization are you usually being brought in by? Well, it, it'll be usually at the higher levels of the organization. So VP of quality mm -hmm. might bring us right. in. Uh, we like to be brought in and, and have a relationship with the C-suite. And we've got a few hospitals we're working with right now. We had a CEO who looked at his culture safety data, and, and he, he said, I want to have a different story in three years. I want to be the best hospital. I want to be in the highest 75th to 80th percentile. I don't want to be in the 40th percentile. What is it going to take for us to get there? And we've been working closely with him. That's the ideal engagement for us. So that's always the challenge. Is Same it, for us. Yeah, totally. it's always the challenge is to get to the, get to yeah. the C-suite because they are going to make that financial decision. And so if an engagement for us is a hundred or $200,000, that's a C-suite decision. Sure. Yep. I was just curious, and it's interesting that you came with that question right here, because the question I was going to ask is, since it's a, such a cultural thing, oh, we're doing okay, our numbers look like everybody else, how do you make that transition to, geez, we got a problem, we got to, we got to invest some revenue in, in improving this? How do you how do you elucidate well, that problem? Well, we, we do it pretty simply because we can get their quality data. Mm -hmm. and uh, they So can, you call them up and say, hey, we were noticing. Well, it's not that simple. <laughs> but if they uh, – hospitals are now – we have a specialized service, which is uh, – uh, we call it the Safety Culture Analytics Engine. And we've actually built an online engine for this. So we take the data and port it into the system. Right now when people do – they're required by Joint Commission to go out and measure their safety culture. And most people, it's checking a box. Yeah. Yep, we, yep, we measured it. Yep, I saw the report, and it goes on the shelf, mm -hmm. and it's forgotten about. Okay. So we're finding that the more enlightened hospitals are saying, gee, we haven't moved our safety culture in six years. And, um, and we're beginning to realize that maybe that's our problem. Is you know not that we don't have all the right processes and procedures. The problem with joint commission is is it's all about having the right processes and procedures. Okay, doesn't mean people are doing them. Right, and it doesn't mean that, right. Yeah, uh, most hospitals in the United States are joint commission have you know accredited. Yeah, we got huge harm rates, so it's become almost an irrelevant factor. Uh, we're doing work in the Middle East right now, and Joint Commission International is over there. And so it's really interesting. Is the Joint Commission International, they sort of put a flag in the ground and said, hey, we're the accrediting body. And everyone went, oh, okay. Well, we want to get accredited. And, 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 the, and then they say, and we'll help you get there and for a big fee. Yeah. And a very small percentage of hospitals are making it. And yet the question is, once they make it, it doesn't mean that they're a safe hospital. Is it kind of like a who's who's then? It's you know, a little bit, yeah. You, you, you pay, pay. <laughs> yeah. you pay to have your picture in there and you say, right. hey, look, I'm in the who's who's and you yeah. put it on your, your coffee table. So um, so we think that, the, the, that we use this data as, as, a, as a real guide for us to help us get to where we are to help people see what's possible. And, uh, and then finding leaders who are interested in moving in that direction. The data is there. The quality data is there. We can correlate that and show people that their safety culture is really uh, part of the root problem for them. Yeah. Well, I was going to, I cannot believe that we're almost out of I'm time. Just like, wow. <laughs> this, this has been fun. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like we did, like yeah. we've always asked a guest, I mean, what is it that you need that can help you move the ball forward? I mean, are you looking for capital? And how can we help you? Well, uh, we're not looking for capital right now, but we are looking for um, we're looking for good hospitals that really have a, a desire to be the best hospitals, and uh, we want to partner with them to get there. Well, I can really see some synergies between what you do and what we do as yeah, well. Yeah, and I, I think that, that let's continue yeah. that conversation sure. because I think that we th we see technology as a key factor. So in today that. was a win. We've already got a yeah. collaboration so, started. Yeah. Tell people where so, they can get in touch with you so they can get some more information. Well, they can go, they can go to sinensishealth.com and it's S-Y-N-E-N-S-I-S health.com and they can also go to the patient survival handbook.com to learn more about the book. And our website is hangenix.com. So H-A-N-G-E-N-I-X. Or you could email me directly at jeff, J-E-F-F -F, dot Klein, K-L-I-N-E 
at handgenics.com. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you link up with us on social media. We're on Twitter at HealthCon Radio, and we tie in with all of our guests' social media that way so that you can continue to get information from them through us. And uh, follow them as well, because clearly there's some issues that they're working on that will uh, facilitate a, a better state of health for our communities. It's a, it's a real big problem, and I'm glad to see they're tackling it like they are. Any final thoughts from you, Diana? No, I was actually going to ask our guests, have we not, is there anything else we haven't asked you that you wanted to mm. share with our listenership? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that was great. It was really yeah. good dialogue. Well, I, think, wow. I, I think today's topic probably warrants some more conversation for I sure. Agree. Yeah, we'll love to come back. Mm-hmm. Burn up an hour really quickly. So thanks to our guests, Jeff Klein, Rick Stone Thank of you. Hangenics and Sinensis, and of course to my co-host, Diana of uh, Sherwick Media Group, telling, uh, telling healthcare stories and helping uh, people become a little bit better uh, healthcare literate, as you like to say. Patient advocacy. Mm-hmm. Well, make sure you make us an appointment to hook up with us next week, same time, same place. We'll see you then. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.